We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. When I was in high school, I, I've always loved Billy Joel's music, and he had a song that came out when I was in high school that most of you are probably familiar with. Uh, the song is, We Didn't Start the Fire. And I remember hearing that song and, you know, loving it, but it was just this big jumble of words that seemed to not make sense. I thought he was just playing a rhyming game or something. But as I got a little older and started paying more attention to lyrics, I realized that he's kind of walking through his lifetime and all the events on the national and global stage. And when you listen to it through that lens, it's a pretty overwhelming song. Just I'll read the last couple of verses that sort of cover my lifetime. Birth control, Ho Chi Minh, Richard Nixon back again, Moonshot, Woodstock, Watergate, Punk Rock, Begin, Reagan, Palestine, Terror on the Airlines, Ayatollahs in Iran, Russians in Afghanistan, Wheel of Fortune, Sally Ride, Heavy Metal Suicide, Foreign Debts, Homeless Vets, AIDS, Crack, Bernie Getz, hypodermics on the shore, China's under martial law, rock and roll, cola wars, I can't take it anymore. And then the chorus that's repeated throughout the song, we didn't start the fire, it was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire, no, we didn't light it, but we're trying to fight it. And then the very last few times through the chorus as it fades out, he says, we didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't fight the, start the fire. But when we're gone, it will still burn on and 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 on. I got to be honest, I feel that way sometimes. You flip on the evening news and it's just story after story after story after story. We are bombarded with needs. I think about the last 25 years since the songs come out and it's 9-11, the things that pull our hearts, war in Iraq, war in Afghanistan, the Syrian refugee crisis, the condition of our criminal justice system, climate change, uh, the condition of our foster system, famines in Africa, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda, communist dictators, the situation in Ukraine. And what's interesting is a lot of times we as a church, the church as a whole, tend to follow these trends and we're like a distracted animal. It's like bird, bird. You know, we have movements within our church that'll focus on for a while, we'll focus on politics, then we'll fo focus on foster and adoption care, and then we'll focus on criminal justice reform. Uh, we'll focus on, you know, when, since I've been in the missions office about the last 20 years, I've seen American churches and trends that just to reach the world, we go from a passionate desire to get into Russia and the former Soviet Union countries. And then we 
focus on the unreached people groups and we focus on the 1040 window. And then we focus uh, on the Middle East and then we focus now on rapid church planting. It's like we're just following a bunch of marketing executives just trying to solve every problem all at once. And to me, it, it gets overwhelming at a time that I'm getting to the age now where I've seen these cycles just continue to repeat. And you're starting to hold your hands up and say, man, are these problems ever going to get solved? And I feel like Billy Joel, it, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. You know, the, the sad thing about his song is it's just a very humanistic approach. And I think if you just listen to that song, you, you kind of do one or two things. And I think when we watch the news, these are the two things we sort of, that we tend to do. We tend to either panic and, and react or we just get apathetic with the fatigue of crisis after crisis after crisis. I think almost all of us do one of those two things. But if, as we look at today's text in Nehemiah, I want to see how Nehemiah responds to a crisis that's bigger than him. That we're going to see a model in that crisis in Nehemiah, but... Most of the time I hear Nehemiah taught, it's Nehemiah the hero, Nehemiah the leader, which, is, which they're true. Nehemiah is incredible. But tonight, we're going to see the source of Nehemiah's confidence and strength and how he deals with a crisis. And what you'll find is, though he's a model and he's an example of a great leader, ultimately, his focus isn't on his own skill. It's not in his own ability to rebuild this wall, that his focus and the thing he's going to do is call out to the sovereignty of God and the will of God. And he's going to rest with an understanding that God is the one that controls it. Look at me in, at, at chapter 1, beginning verse 1. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It happened in the month of Chizev, that's November, December, uh, in the 20th year meaning the 20th year of Artaxerxes. I was in Susa, the citadel. Susa is the winter palace of the Persian Empire where the temperature was a little cooler. Um, this is the 20th year. By this point, Artaxerxes has recently, we're in about uh, 445 here, and so... He's been in a, in a battle with the Egyptians, that there's been a massive conflict, but that's over now. And the, the nugget we would draw from this time period is just that, like we talked about in Ezra, there's probably a desire for Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, to have a loyal buffer between Persia and Egypt. And so his desire is, is likely to have loyal subjects in Jerusalem. So he has an interest in what's happening in Jerusalem. And, and that's just the background that we need to know going into this passage. He says, I was in Sudaza, the citadel. The Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Nehemiah's concerned about his people. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He's not just concerned with his immediate family and his immediate circumstance. 
He wants to know about the people of God who are elsewhere. He asks for this report. I think one principle we draw from this is we, as the people of God, need to be concerned not just with our own immediate needs, not just with the people around us, but a global concern for the people of God around the world. That there's a model here in Nehemiah's concern. And the report is bleak. He says, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, you may remember back in Ezra chapter 4, if you want to flip back there for a second. In Ezra chapter 1, in Ezra chapter 4, we get, we get just, it's sort of a, uh, an anthology of the opposition that they faced. And remember, they're, they're not necessarily, they're in chronological order, but they're not in sequence. So the, you get this one story in the middle of Ezra chapter 4 that seems to look forward because it talks about the time of Artaxerxes. So Ezra is going to cover the time period that, that begins with Cyrus and goes through Darius and ultimately Artaxerxes. But this event in chapter 4 is a looking forward to some time in this window. So it'd be somewhere in the, between the 7th year of Artaxerxes and the 20th year of Artaxerxes. And we don't know when it happens with the 20th year being when, when Nehemiah is writing. But as you look back to this letter, it says, In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Midarath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote Artaxerxes, king of Persia, a letter. And what does that letter say? Look down uh, in verse... 11, this is a copy of the letter. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, they send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and wicked city. They're finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt, the walls finished, they will not pay tribute or custom and the royal revenue will be impaired. Basically, they make the accusation that if you let these people rebuild the city, rebuild their walls, they're going to stop paying taxes and ultimately they're going to rebel and be a thorn in your flesh. And so what does Artaxerxes do? He sends a letter and orders them to shut it down. So it's sometime before Nehemiah hears this report that all that has been shut down again. And so when Nehemiah receives this report, it's devastating. The shame, the reproach that's going on in the city. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar came through and Babylon destroyed the city, they knocked down everything. They're basically sitting in shambles. And now Zerubbabel brought them back. They rebuilt the temple. Ezra brings them back and calls them to worship. As Corey took you through the last couple of weeks, that they are, they're called to put away their foreign gods. They're called to put away their foreign wives. They're called to, a, to basically a revival and a restoration. But now 12 years later, we come to Nehemiah, and the city's still in shambles. Think about the situation being overwhelming, like our situations. 
one of my favorite comedians. You know, so, so I guess the question is, what do we do? One of my favorite comedians is Stephen Wright. And I don't know if any of you have listened to him, but he delivers everything in a very deadpan, incredible, dry presentation. One of my favorite little things he says, he says, I remember as a kid, I was like five years old watching TV. Smokey the Bear comes on and says, only you can prevent forest fires. The pressure he felt. He said, that's why every night out the window, a bucket of water. And I feel sometimes like that's how we solve problems, right? It's, it's we feel this incredible pressure, but we got nothing for it. And maybe, just maybe Nehemiah had a flash of that. I don't think so. I think he knew immediately where to go. Verse 4, as soon as I heard those words. Now, for me, if I heard this, I'd be like, as soon as I heard those words, I rushed out to solve the problem by setting up an organization by sending money to this group, by acting. But Nehemiah says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. My knee-jerk is to fix it. His knee-jerk is to sit before God. Which does two things to me. One is it convicts me because prayer is usually my last resort. But second, it convicts me because of the deep mourning he feels for this problem. Because I would say in, in my mind, a lot of times when I'm faced with a news story that grieves me, my grief lasts about, lasts about 10 minutes until I get distracted by something else. And I have to say, did I really care about that thing like I thought I did? Was I really grieved by the pain and the suffering and the hurting that others are experiencing? Or did I just feel bad for a few minutes and move on? He sat for days mourning before the Lord, fasting and praying. That there's a seriousness that Nehemiah understood about this situation. But there's also a commitment that he knows this is an order outside of anything I can do, that I have to trust God. He's the only one that can solve this problem. Verse five, and I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Look at the way he addresses him. O Lord, Yahweh, This isn't abstract. He cries out with God's personal name that he's given Israel as a covenant, a sign of his personhood. God is not a distant, uh, uncaring, impersonal force. Yahweh, covenant, personal. God of heaven and earth Nehemiah points us to God's supreme dominion and power. You're not just our personal God, but you're a God over all the gods. Thinking about living in Persia with all these Near Eastern God, I mean, ancient Near Eastern gods. And he says, you are the supreme. You have dominion. You are sovereign. Not only do you care about us personally, but you are sovereign over all. Great and awesome 
You're over all the other gods. It's a praise. I think Nehemiah is more concerned about God's honor. And I think for us, the more we concern ourselves with God's honor and our relationship with him, the more equipped and able we are to understand his purposes, the more intense concern we will have for these needs. The more time we spend with God, the more we recognize who he is, the more he starts to shape and mold us to be concerned with not whatever the latest thing across our desk is, but with what he's concerned with. And I think the reason Nehemiah is grieved by this situation, we might be tempted to look and say, ah, the walls are down, that's a bummer. But the reason Nehemiah is so concerned with this is because he knows who God is. He's intimate with God, and he realizes to God this is grievous because it represents the consequences of the sin of the people. It represents the brokenness of the relationship between God and his people. So while we may be tempted to say it's just a wall, Nehemiah understands it's so much more. Great and awesome God. And I think he has this trust because he understands who God is and he understands God's word. He's going to start in the next section of this prayer just working through the Old Testament with God. He's not focusing on simple petitions of what he needs. He's going to walk through theologically who God is and who the people are and what they've done. Look at verse 6. He says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant. Obviously, he knows God hears. Although that's pretty mind-numbing as well, right? To think about millions and millions of prayers overlapping each one and God of, the God of the universe can hear each individual prayer and process and act. But Nehemiah isn't raising his hand saying, over here, over here, listen to me. He's calling God for action. And it's obvious that God hears our prayers, but Lord, pay attention to this prayer. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Corey pointed out last week, but Ezra doesn't set himself apart as one who is different. It's not a we, they, they've sinned. It's not the prayer of the Pharisee. It's the prayer of the the tax collector. Lord, we have sinned before you. I think in his identification with his people, he, he shows himself a great leader. He identifies with his people, just like in with Jesus. You know, even though Jesus didn't sin, he so identified with the people who were coming to repent that he insisted that John the Baptist baptize him. Again, not because of his personal um, guilt, but an identification with those who are sinning. That, that Nehemiah comes not as one who has specifically done this thing, but with the humility of a sinner 
to say, we've sinned against you. I think sometimes we're tempted to say, to see us ourselves as the good guy and the world as the bad guy. But in humility, the humility that the gospel brings to our life to say, I'm a broken, wretched sinner, just like these people, Lord, save us. He says, we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We've not kept the commandments and the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. That we are sinners. He doesn't get real specific. He doesn't go down the list. But the general sense is we've broken the covenant. You know, his focus on the sins of the people, he he doesn't come to God and say, fix the wall immediately. He focuses on the problem that created the wall, the sins of the people in the past, the sins of the people right now. This is an us problem. You know, one of the philosophical discussions we think about is, is why do bad things happen? Why is there evil in the world? If God is a loving God, why doesn't he stop it? He must not be all powerful. And I think that the answer to that question is always God doesn't cause the problems. That you take any problem in the world, any suffering that's taking place in the world, and you can point back to human sin. And I think that's what Nehemiah is acknowledging here. The problem, God, is us. It's our hearts who have turned from you. Throughout this passage, he's going to allude back to the law. He's going to allude back to their disobedience. That if, if they truly loved him, they would obey, and they clearly aren't. But he also knows what's coming up if you return he says, even my, my father's house has sinned. We have acted corruptly, have not kept your commandments that you commanded your servant Moses. But then listen to this. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Did that happen? It absolutely happened. But if you return to me and keep my commandments, and do them, though your outcasts, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Lord, you promised us that if in our wickedness we would turn and we would repent, and we would acknowledge you that you would bring us back together. That basically, this verse is the center of the prayer, that if we return, you promised. He's not calling God out the way we might call a court out by bringing forth precedent and say, judge, you may not know about this issue, but here's an issue that's been settled before the court. We're talking to an omniscient God. He clearly knows what he's promised the people. But Nehemiah is bringing his will into the alignment of God's will, saying, look, God, 
You promised us that if we would repent, you would restore us. And that's what we're asking for. Our sin has driven us away. And so that when Nehemiah is coming to God, he's not trying to manipulate God. He's not begging to God. Derek Kidner said, he's, not, he's coming to God empty-handed, but he's not coming without an invitation. Meaning, he's appealing to the thing that God invited them to do. He has nothing to offer. All we have is our sin, but we do have this promise that you've given us. He's not arbitrarily asking for what he wants. He's asking God to fulfill the promise that he's already made. He recognizes the will of God, and now he's praying according to it. That, that this is a model we see throughout uh, the covenant. When we do, I've got Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 4 here. He says, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind, among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from the people where the Lord your God is scattered. If you're outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and there he will take you. We've seen this cycle, right? We saw it in the Judges. If, if you know the book of Judges, it's a continual set of cycles where God delivers his people, they rebel against him, they find themselves in a, a repressed situation where they're being oppressed, they're experiencing cruelty, they cry out to God, he brings a judge and restores them, and then the cycle repeats itself. We saw it at the beginning of Ezra, right? That God is... He, he brought the, the judgment through Babylon to carry them out and scatter them and to destroy Jerusalem. And as they repented after 70 years, he brought them back, first under Zerubbabel, then under Ezra, and now under Nehemiah. So we're seeing God fulfilling his words. We're seeing this, this steady consistency that God keeps his covenants, and it's that is where Nehemiah is appealing to God on the basis of his promises. Verse 10, he says, They're your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and let the prayer of your servants who delight in you fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. God has brought a plan to Nehemiah's heart. He's going to approach the king. But Nehemiah prays that God will grant him success and that the king will be receptive. Think about it. That's what happened with Cyrus in Ezra chapter 1. That's what happens with Ezra in chapter 7. He finds favor in the king's sight. That's what happens with Esther this entire time period is filled with God working in the hearts of kings that his people would find favor. And that's all Nehemiah is asking, Lord, help me find favor. Help your people find favor. That's nothing for God. 
But Nehemiah is also acknowledging it's not up to my charm. It's not up to my skill. It's not up to my rhetorical persuasive skills. It's you who could turn our Xerxes' heart. So Lord, on behalf of your people, I ask that you do that. that. That he's simply asking God to fulfill what he's promised. The crazy thing to me about Nehemiah that's so convicting is that he's not trying to gain something. He's not the focus of this request. His desires, his needs, his wants aren't what's important. It's God, Yahweh. It's his concerns and it's his people. The last verse really sets us up for the next chapter. He says, I was a cupbearer for the king. It's like we zoom out a little bit and realize, whoa, this guy is important in the kingdom. He's the guy that tastes the food and the drink before the king tastes it to make sure it's not poisoned or or bad. That he is in one of the most trusted positions of authority. Because if you're going to poison or kill the king... You got to somehow work out a conspiracy with this guy. So how trusted is he? Very trusted. And I think about Nehemiah, he had to be in a pretty comfortable spot. That's why I was saying I don't it's not his personal ambition, it's not his personal gain. It's not his personal benefit that he is giving his life for the life of God's people and for the glory of God. And he's a model for us. But he acknowledges that his access to the king alone won't solve the problem. God's got to keep his promises. And to see how he does, you'll have to come back next week. But as we look at this passage, I think there's a few principles, a few applications. Why is this text here? How does it work into our lives? I think, first of all, uh, unlike Billy Joel, we don't have to respond with apathy or despair. That we don't have to have the mindset that it just goes on and on and on. Sure, there's elements of that. We're going to see the consequences of sin until we are on the new heaven and the new earth. That we live in a fallen world. But we also serve a sovereign God that we can trust, that we can get comfort from the fact that he's in control. I think first thing I see from Nehemiah is that I can't be apathetic to the struggles and the suffering of God's people, whether it's here locally, whether it's on the other side of the globe. I can't be apathetic to God's people or his purposes. I think we want to kind of just turn on the TV and ignore it, surf the web and ignore it. That's not an option. That like Nehemiah, we may have to give up our numbing comfort to be aware of what's going on. Second, my knee-jerk reaction has got to be toward God. 
My degree was engineering. I think like an engineer. Problem, solution, problem, solution. How do I figure it out? What steps do I need to take? And let's come up with a plan and do it. That can't be my first reaction to every problem I see. Typically, that's how it works, right? We see a need, a ministry pops up, we give to that need. We see a need, a ministry pops up, we go to that place. We see a need, we get panicked by it, we overreact. But like Nehemiah, my first move needs to be toward God. That there's got to be a filtering. I've got to ask about the will of God, the purposes of God. Not in a paralysis of analysis sort of way, but in a genuine sense of what would God have me do? What has God said about this situation? How should I respond? That, that third, as my first move is to God, my, my heart has to be consumed with his purposes. Is this thing important to God? And if so, what are steps I can take? So my heart needs to be turned to his purposes. And then fourth, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. All of you have special roles and special opportunities. You're in different roles in your life. To look around and react based on who you are and where you are. On a daily basis, faithfulness. For instance, I don't have the opportunity to affect any change within some university on the East Coast that's preaching or teaching things that are hostile to God. I've got no influence there. That, that there's a sense in which we can get overwhelmed. Neil Postman talked about uh, LIAR, low information to action ratio. The, the idea that we are bombarded with so many ideas and we have so much information in our head but compared to the amount of information we get, our action is low. So it's the low information action ratio. So unplug some from the information and start to look around and say, where can I take action? What are the steps that I can take? For instance, in my life, it's being faithful to shepherd and teach you guys in my BTCP class and anyone that comes in my life to shepherd them and teach God's word that their hearts might be changed. It's to shepherd my children. It's to be faithful and engaged with the people that God's brought to me, to manage well our BTCV program overseas. That I can be faithful to God's word and instruct those in my care. What about your neighborhoods? What about your jobs? A chance to Maybe prayerfully commit to walking regularly around your neighborhood to be known, to engage your neighbors, to chat with them, to just be a person who's involved. That instead of just griping about city leadership, county leadership, state leadership, actually getting involved and engaging the community to be involved in the things, the areas that we have influence, the areas that we have an opportunity to persuade people to stop 
things that are bad to engage with things that are good. You can start a group and, and pray for and engage and volunteer at a local, local school. Again, these are not magical things, but where do we have opportunities to get involved that people would know who God is, to persuade people about his goodness? That you may need to be equipped to get involved, to get engaged. The Access Truth class on Sunday morning to hear more about the world around us and how you can engage. This church has a plethora of training opportunities. There's no excuse. But I think at the end of the day, all this pulls back to Nehemiah's heart. It's grieved by the situation and appeals to God on the basis of his will that he wants to see change, that he wants to see the city restored. This city of God that's laying in shambles, that's carrying shame, that he says, Lord, intervene on your half of your people. You promised that if we would return to you, you would do this. So I pray that you would do this. Let's pray. God, we are humbled as we read Nehemiah's words. We're challenged as we look at our own hearts. As I think about Nehemiah's response here, I'm convicted and how uncaring I can be. But Lord, your word is clear. You are concerned. So, Lord, whatever role we play, whatever opportunities we have, I pray that you would stir and work in our hearts, that we would be more concerned with what you are concerned with, and that we would take action, trusting you to accomplish your will. We pray in your son's name. Amen.